Hello and welcome to the Damn Interesting Week podcast. We hope you had a lovely week. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First First link. link. Our first link comes to us from Vice. The title of this article by Sebastian Weselowski is, In the 1950s, hundreds of people started hallucinating visions of hell. Uh Uh-oh. Wow. (laughs) You know, I felt this was kind of topical, even though it's not really topical. (laughs) Have you been having hallucinations of hell? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure if they're hallucinations. They look very real to me. But Mm. uh, Mm -hmm. in the case of this article, the probable cause was also one of the primary ingredients in the world's favorite psychedelic. Uh (laughs) So the article goes into describing an event in 1951 in a small French town of Pont-Saint-Esprit, and victims were complaining of abdominal pains, delirium, and hallucinations of flames and hellish creatures. It was pretty intense. Some even tried to throw themselves out of their windows to escape the imaginary inferno. Over 300 people in the region were taken into medical care. Five died, and about 60 ended up in psychiatric hospitals, with some still hallucinating hallucinating a month later. Whoa. Uh, Yeah. So, I mean, it still isn't really clear what exactly did this, but a lot of medical specialists and historians agree that it might have been rye ergot fungus, which is a parasite that latches onto rye crops, but also can latch onto wheat, barley, oats, and wild grass. And the reason they think this is that when you eat bread with contaminated rye flour, you contract what we now call ergotism. But in the Middle Ages, people gave this a more frightening name. They used to call it burning disease or hellfire, or maybe you've heard of St. Anthony's fire or St. Andrew's fire. I've heard of it, but I don't, I've never associated with hallucinations. Right, right. Usually it's associated with basically what is gangrene, which can occur when you eat ergot and it causes your limbs to get all black and shriveled, which is why they called it burning disease, hellfire, St. Anthony's fire or St. Andrew's fire. The last two being the order of French monks who cared for victims. So this goes back even longer than 1950s France, right? Ergotism was likely discovered when humans began cultivating grain around 10,000 years ago. And the Roman scholar Pliny is the first to mention ergot-invested grain much later in the first century AD. But it wasn't until after historians and chemists described the Greeks using the fungus as a chemical weapon and a psychoactive drug during the celebrations of the Eleusinian Mysteries. And so the gangrene connection was the, the fungus didn't give them gangrene right? Well, according to this, it kind of does. In the 10th century, ergotism regularly killed tens of thousands in Western Europe when famines forced the poor to eat this contaminated grain, and writers of that era described its most awful symptom, which was gangrene. One of the quotes here was that the limbs burned bit by bit were consumed until death ended the torment. A monk was convinced that the black and withered body parts had been burned and wrote, quote, at that time, a terrible plague struck down upon men, that is to say, a hidden fire, which, when it consumed a limb, detached it from the body. So basically, like, not only are you going to die a horrible, painful death, but you're going to be hallucinating the whole time. 
Right? Maybe not the whole time, but you will definitely be tripping and it will definitely be a bad trip. But it wow. doesn't just make you go crazy and die. Some of the properties inside Ergot are now being used to treat migraines. Oh, okay. Huh. So, you know, it's a little better than a migraine, I guess. Definitely. So we've basically been able to identify two forms of ergotism. There's the gangrenous version, which we've been talking about. And there's also something called convulsive, which is less deadly, but just as frightening. And this is because ergot activates the same neurotransmitters as serotonin. And when you have massive doses of serotonin, we get something called serotonin syndrome. The intestines empty themselves, the muscles contract, <laughs> skin is covered in sweat, and the mind becomes confused. And if any of our listeners have ever taken MDMA, this can also trigger the same kind of serotonin syndrome. So if you've ever clenched your teeth while on that drug, you've had a little taste of what the syndrome is like. Hypothetically. Hypothetically. <laughs> if in the wild case anyone is familiar with this kind of thing, that's where that connection is. But convulsive ergotism is basically a type of serotonin syndrome. And the convulsive version basically locks limbs into grotesque and painful positions and can sometimes require several people to overpower a victim. Holy crap. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like we're kind of talking about like bread PCP right now. Like that's yeah. intense. Yeah. So like in the 1950s, were these people aware of what was happening? Like were they chasing a rye high or what was <laughs> going on? I don't think this has ever been intentionally sought after as recent as the 20th century. So, you know, we've got a lot of methods like pesticides and the breeding of fungus resistant crops, which basically eradicated ergotism for a while, other than these kind of rare reemergences when it kind of fades out of knowledge or people don't know what to look for. What's interesting, too, is that in the 1930s, the Swiss chemist Albert Hoffman became interested in the fungus and his work with ergot resulted in treatments for hemorrhages, infertility, Parkinson's disease, and later something we now know as LSD because he was actually mm -hmm. trying to create a compound to stimulate the respiratory circulatory systems when he formulated it. And LSD-25 was basically his 25th ergot-based compound. So years after drugs companies had given up on the substance, he accidentally ingested some and now we know about LSD. <laughs> But, you know, for any of our listeners who may have even heard about someone taking LSD, <laughs> those hallucinations are very different than the fiery visions of people who are ergot victims. Yeah, I have to say, it's interesting to hear about a hallucinogen that causes the same hallucination in everybody. Like a lot of hallucinogens, it sort of mm -hmm. affects you based on your own brain and your own experiences and whatever you've got lurking down in your deep subconscious. But this, mm -hmm. to give the same hallucination to everybody is really fascinating. It must be working on a very particular part of the brain. Right. Or maybe in its whole and untreated or unrefined form, it may have other different compounds that can kind of collude mm -hmm. to create the similarities as opposed to LSD, which is obviously kind of selective and refined and can open a path for things that are not hellfire and brimstone type hallucination. So watch your rye. That's right. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> You're not ready to jump on the uh, the LSD train because of this? Uh, I mean, I, come I'm... on. If it weren't for the hallucinations, at least for the gangrene, I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, you know, these visions and hallucinations of hellfire and misery, I think we've got enough that are not hallucinations right now to pay attention to. So I'm good. That's right. We don't need to add to it. <laughs> Next link. Next link. So uh, we all know about Elon Musk, right? Space guy, SpaceX, yeah. Tesla. Yeah. Yeah, that guy. Yeah. <laughs> that guy. <laughs> so he gets a lot of people trying to reach out to him and message him and stuff like that. But apparently he recently changed his phone number and now it belongs to Lindsay Tucker, who is a 25-year-old <laughs> skincare consultant. Oh, no. So 
she has been getting uh, Elon Musk's calls and text messages for years, essentially. Oh my God. Uh, looks like two or three years. Wow. And yeah, so she just works at a Sephora beauty store in San Jose, California, and had never even heard of Tesla and SpaceX until a couple years ago, which is really when Elon Musk started blowing up. And so on any given day, she receives at least three calls or texts intended for Musk, who she has never Ugh. actually met. It's especially bad whenever the, you know, maverick billionaire, as he's called in this article, which is actually from uh, NPR.org, should have mentioned that. Whenever he provokes a scandal, mm-hmm. he her phone will end up blowing up with a torrent of messages related to it. So I guess this number must be on, on the internet somewhere as a way to get in touch with Elon Musk. Because otherwise, I mean, why would it persist for so long? Right. Or yeah. even saved in people's contacts as in their phones that they pass along to other people. Yeah. It is a bit of a gated network. Yeah. And there's actually a document that they embedded of a screenshot where somebody just texts Elon with a question mark. <laughs> and... <laughs> Lindsay messages back, nope, and this person says that they met with him last week and was given uh, this number. So apparently during this time around 2017, Elon must have just switched over, and so that number was probably circulating around quite a bit. Or he's just being <laughs> a jerk and giving out a fake number because he doesn't want yeah. to right, deal with people. because, you know, women do that in bars yeah. to get away from creepy creeps, but poor Lindsay. Well, I mean, she could change her number if she wanted. Like, I feel like this is not entirely that awful for her or she would do something about it. Yeah, but then what would that number do in the wrong hands of someone who knew who he was and wanted to wreak havoc? She might be doing as a public service, That's right. right. That's right. She's not impersonating him. It's much better to have somebody who just doesn't really care and thinks it's fun as opposed to mm-hmm. somebody who is intentionally malicious about it. Uh, right. So she's intercepted some pretty interesting calls as well. One woman volunteered to go to space with SpaceX. Another person sent in a blueprint for a bionic limb. And <laughs> Tucker actually reports saying, number one, really cool, but I have no idea how it's built a (laughs) south african businessman asked about buying a thousand trucks and the irs actually called about a complicated tax issue tucker (laughs) thought that that one was for her and so she was very relieved she does not owe several million dollars in some sort of error yeah exactly (laughs) uh she's gotten a call from the former walt disney executive john lassiter who texted about the tesla he just bought saying that it was a magnificent car and that the (laughs) self-driving is a trip And Tucker (laughs) actually ended up going to the same college as his son, so they were able to connect over that. Also, Jeff Gold, who's an Atlanta-area inventor, sent a text message about some coronavirus research. Gold said that Elon had given him the number a long time ago, and so he just went back in his phone records Mm -hmm. and tracked down the correct number and reset the text, essentially. (laughs) Well, it sounds like it makes sense that he had to change his own number, because if she's getting this much junk, even now, three years after the fact, Imagine how much stuff he must get on a daily basis once his number starts getting out there. I know. My heart really breaks for him. (laughs) Oh. Yeah, so public records actually do show that Tucker's number, which was once Elon's number, was associated with a condo that he bought and sold years ago in Palo Alto. And after Musk got rid of the number, AT&T just randomly reassigned it to Tucker. But it was replicated online on dozens of listing sites as Musk's current digits. There it is. And it's never going away now because, like you said, it's replicated everywhere. Yeah, exactly. And so NPR actually reached out to Musk to see if he knew about it. And he was really surprised. He said, wow, that number is so old. I'm surprised it's still out there somewhere. And... <laughs> I was like, I'm not going to I'm not going to contact her or do anything about it. I just OK, wow, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what an interesting problem somebody else is having, huh? Right. <laughs> 
Yeah, and Tucker's often found that she is having to actually convince people that she is not Musk, and they'll say, oh, how do I know you're not Elon, even though apparently they're obviously talking to a woman on the phone that is not Elon Musk. And (laughs) while Tucker finds it really interesting and kind of a rare window into the life of Elon Musk, it can feel like a full-time job because whenever she sees his name pop up in the news, she thinks, oh, I actually have to learn about what he said because chances <laughs> are somebody's going to message me and right. call about it. And she, has, <laughs> she says that even though she finds it funny most of the time, it does get irritating when it seems like it's call after call after call. Yeah, and I imagine there's probably a lot of angry calls in there too. Like you said, he's prone to scandal. And I imagine mm-hmm. it just like any sort of high-profile person, he's going to be getting death threats and, you know, people just being generally angry <laughs> at him because it's not possible to be a figure of that right. status and not have people be angry at you. So it's yeah. like, I mean, she's got all of the awful part of it and none of the benefit of being an incredibly rich person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And she says that she's going to keep the number because she's actually an aspiring actress who does have a network of contacts who now know her by these digits. Oh. Uh, <laughs> But she does acknowledge that her ability to respond to all the must calls and texts changes varying depending on the day. She even has a message for anybody who's reading this NPR article, which says, I'm sorry, sometimes I don't respond if I'm having a rough day. So if you didn't get a response, it's probably me, not him. Don't feel too let down. (laughs) She goes apologizing for him. For I mean, that's just (laughs) the whole subtext of this article is really kind of a commentary on women's emotional labor and how that is basically both hidden and expected. And maybe that's been on my mind a lot. But uh, well, yeah, she feels like she's got a not so much for his sake, but I think for the caller's sake, you know, she doesn't want to just leave them hanging. She feels like she's got to reach out and connect and say, oh, I'm sorry, you didn't reach that person. I hope that Tucker at least is going to turn this into some kind of hustle. Like maybe at one point she'll just randomly get a call from a casting director who's trying to cast her an Elon Musk movie and she just finds a way to plug herself and uh, take advantage of all that work she's doing. That's right. I, she I might ho- be getting I hope it works it. out for her. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> she deserves it. Next link. Next link. Well, this one comes from Nina Siegel at the New York Times. It asks a very important question that I think is on everyone's mind. What do you do with a stolen Van Gogh? (laughs) (laughs) So the, the backstory here is on March 30th of this year, someone stole a Van Gogh painting from the Singer Laren Museum in Amsterdam, which it displays exclusively Van Gogh paintings. So if anything is stolen from there, it's going to be a Van Gogh. So, you know, there's some security footage of a guy smashing the glass doors and basically just walking in and picking it up and taking it out. I don't know what kind of security they thought they had, but whatever it was, he walked right through it. And there's a private detective on the case who's sort of an expert in these art heist cases. And he claimed that there were, quote, similarities between this theft and one that was perpetrated back in the early 2000s by a somewhat famous thief named Octave Durham. And he goes by Aki. Aki has an alibi. He was in the hospital at the time. But the author of this piece kind of decided to interview him for a perspective on like how one steals and what one does with a Van Gogh once you have one. Because at one point, he had two of them in his possession. (laughs) So not surprisingly, Aki is very dismissive of the March 30th thief. They showed him the security footage and he said, look at that. His gear is not even professional. If you're a professional, you're fully in black. He's got jeans and Nike sneakers on. (laughs) More importantly... He said that the museum will probably get the painting back. It's a question of when. As, <laughs> as he found out the hard way when he stole a pair of them, 
There is no market for upscale art lovers who sort of, you know, these evil billionaires who want to own a stolen work, but only they get to look at it kind of idea. He said that's... <laughs> you mean supervillains? Right, right, right. Yeah. He said that's <laughs> like movies. That's not real. Uh, I feel very misled. Yeah. Actual stolen works of art. They're very hard to move because everyone knows it's missing. Everyone knows what it right. is. Uh, yeah. So he said most thieves actually just hang on to the paintings or sell them to other criminals for the purpose of using them to negotiate plea deals when they're eventually caught for some other crime. So it's like leverage? Yeah, exactly. It's instead of turning on one of your co-conspirators for something else, you say, hey, I maybe know where a stolen Van Gogh is. How about you shave some time off my uh, my sentence? And it works. Like, this is just sort of a known thing in the criminal world is you can use these paintings as leverage if, for whatever reason, you need them in the future. Aki himself was convicted by DNA evidence on a hat that he left at the scene in 2004, which presumably was black, I assume. (laughs) (laughs) He served 25 months, but at the time he never revealed who he'd sold the painting to. And I don't know if they took the money that he had gotten from the sale or not, but basically he did his time and got out and still no one knew where the painting he had stolen was. But police ultimately found it in 2016 when an Italian drug trafficker admitted to having them boarded up in the kitchen of his mother's house. And it was precisely what Aki had said. The guy was just holding on to it till he needed it. And he had been brought up on (laughs) drug trafficking charges. Uh, So they got those two back that he had stolen just relatively recently in 2016. But Aki said he revealed that stolen paintings usually sell between criminals on the black market for about two and a half Mm -hmm. to five percent of their museum value. So a $10 million painting would only get you but little under half a million, which is not a bad haul if you're stealing something. Right. But it's what sort of guarantees that these very expensive paintings usually come back eventually. The museums tend to be much more concerned when these lesser works of art are stolen because they get destroyed when the criminals find out how little they can be sold for. Wow. Because a lot of criminals are still thinking, oh, man, I'm going to get this and and move it. It must be expensive. It's in a museum. And they're like, "Mm, that's kind of a lesser known Flemish guy. We don't really. (laughs) 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 I mean, we like it, but we're not going to sell it for millions. But uh... (laughs) Aki, of course, he reiterates that he has turned his life around. He said, first of all, he never hurt anybody. He was big into heists and bank robberies, and he stole a lot of things. But he never injured anybody. He always made sure, you know, get in, get out fast. Don't ever have anybody around that you have to deal with. He's had a biography and a documentary made about his life recently, and he says that even if he hypothetically went back to stealing, he would never do art again because he says it's not like doing a bank job. I understand now that people really like art, and if you steal it, people are going to get mad and get hurt. Aww. So (laughs) at the very (laughs) least, he seems to uh, be promising no more Van Gogh heists from him, but He doesn't have any information, unfortunately, to help them on finding this current guy who is still at large. And if history is any indication, we're not going to get those two Van Gogh paintings back for another 10, 15 years at least. Unless someone gets caught and needs to pull out a get out of jail card. Right, right. Or reduce the sentence card. Right. You just got to you just got to catch all the other criminals and then maybe it'll crop up. I really like (laughs) that this kind of paints a picture, no pun intended, Uh, of uh, this criminal world that's very much about like glamour and high stakes things, which mm -hmm. it's like the posh crime, you know? Like that's why you steal paintings because you're a classy criminal. It's a gentleman's crime. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And well, and I think movies probably feed into that idea. Like you said, the Mm supervillain. Everybody feels like that should be a thing, right? The guy who's got Mm -hmm. the incredibly rare whatever hidden in his bunker that we all know was stolen, but only he knows he has it. 
And it, it's disappointing to find out it's not real. But I imagine a lot of people <laughs> steal things based on that narrative, right? Yeah. And, I, you know, I want them to get it back. But also, I've seen the pictures. They had pictures of the paintings in the article. Mm -hmm. And they're not Van Gogh's best. I'll be honest. <laughs> I don't think they're going to sell as much, uh, sell for as much as Starry Night would, but uh, right, maybe something. Right. <laughs> it's still a name brand. Right, and right. the irony is, you know, the artist still died completely penniless and in total disarray. So that that irony persists. That's right. Possibly he'd be, yeah. he'd approve of this whole black market of his paintings. He'd be like, at least it's doing somebody some good. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. Our next link is a little bit of a kind of happier note, just to kind of inject some tone into this week. It's from the Saturday Evening Post, and this one's about the curious saga of the ukulele. Ooh. Do you guys like ukulele music? Uh, you know, it's fine. <laughs> I mean, I own one, but I don't know how to play it very well. Mm -hmm. That You know what? You are in very good company. Um, It's a really interesting kind of historical perspective of how this, what they call on-again, off-again popularity of a very Hawaiian instrument. And, and most of us think of it as a Hawaiian instrument, right? Mm -hmm. I, I tend to think of it as a hipster instrument, but I think if I really <laughs> thought about it, I would say, oh, yeah, yeah. It, it goes back farther than that. Like, we don't have to give credit to the hipsters for it. Yeah, I, right. I actually got mine in Maui, but I assume it just came from a ukulele farm and I probably <laughs> should have gotten it locally sourced or something. Right. A little bit closer to the source. Well, actually, the source here, you know, it's considered a quintessentially Hawaiian instrument. I mean, you can play pretty much any kind of music on a, a ukulele, but what we consider Hawaiian music usually has some kind of ukulele in it. Mm -hmm. And indeed, it, it is a symbol of local pride and native culture. But it actually has its roots on an island half a world away. Huh. What? Hmm. About two centuries ago, a small four-string guitar-like instrument called the machete, interestingly enough, hmm. became popular on the Portuguese archipelago of Madeira and was usually kind of enjoyed by local sugarcane farm workers. But when the Portuguese economy sank in the 1870s and Hawaii, which used to be known as the Sandwich Islands, boomed with sugar plantations and cattle farms, a lot of Madeirans emigrated to meet the demand for labor and brought along their favorite instrument. The first huh. local mention in Hawaii of the ukulele is in 1879 when the Hawaiian Gazette noted, quote, a band of Portuguese musicians, fine performers on their strange instruments, which are <laughs> a kind of cross between a guitar and a banjo, but which produce very sweet music. Once the Portuguese craftsmen were in Hawaii and after they'd emigrated, they found out that wood from a tree grown in Hawaii, the koa tree, was apparently ideal for shaping the instruments and producing fine tones. And so once they started locally producing it, Hawaiians adopted the instrument with enthusiasm. And so by the mid-1880s, pretty much everybody was playing on one of these darn things. <laughs> and some tourists actually complained that they heard it, quote, 27 out of 24 hours in the day. So this thing was <laughs> super widespread. Given how people had really fast-moving fingers hopping all over the strings, the instrument soon earned the name ukulele, which is Hawaiian for jumping flea. Oh, huh. that's cute. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> cute and a little troubling. <laughs> Well, you know. <laughs> so by the late 1880s, the ukulele had pretty much become a symbol of national identity. According to a book called Ukulele History, the court of King Kalakaua first used the ukulele in hula performances at his coronation in 1883. His daughter, soon to be the queen, composed the anthem Aloha Oi, which is still taught to every Hawaiian child. And then mm -hmm. following the U.S. overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy in 1893, these sweet local songs, which were unintelligible to most visitors, were actually anthems of protest against 
against the new ruler. So even though it sounded really sweet, it would still kind of rage against the machine there. Like, did they write new protest songs or was it just the fact that we're playing it means we hearken to the olden days? I think it's a little bit of both. This article doesn't go into the details of that, but I have kind of been exposed to previous information that notes that because a lot of the lyrics were in actual Hawaiian, they could sing these right in front of people who didn't speak Hawaiian and didn't realize that Mm. what they were doing was a song of protest or anything like that. So once U.S. culture started to get into the islands, the jumping flea got into the mainland. And so at the 1893 Chicago's World Fair, Hawaiian music and ukulele performances were a full-fledged craze. In the San Francisco Chronicle in 1916, they noted the country has all of a sudden gone mad over Hawaiian music. Then it hit Broadway in 1916 with the Ziegfeld Follies and Irving Berlin productions, which had hula and ukuleles. It got into the vaudeville circuit, and there were some hit songs, uh, including one by Al Jolson called Yaka Hula Hickey Dula and the Honolulu (laughs) Hickey Bula Boo, which were obviously ridiculed by Hawaiians because they were considered Hapa Haole style, which is a derogatory term referring to those who are half Hawaiian and half white. So cultural appropriation. uh, Yeah. Yeah. A very familiar (laughs) tune, as it were. (laughs) We hit our first peak saturation with ukuleles in the Roaring Twenties because it became the top-selling instrument in the country by 1925. Wow. Wow. It was considered a hipster accessory on college campuses even as early as the Twenties. But when we hit the Depression of the Thirties, it became kind of a cliche. It was used to suggest frivolous old times. It was even smashed to bits in movies by Buster Keaton and Laurel and Hardy. was mocked as a public menace, a hideous (laughs) musical instrument. So, I mean, people had their fill. The peak kind of died. And then in the 1950s, it came back because there were a lot of cheap plastic models, as well as folks like Arthur Godfrey, who was a ukulele playing radio and TV star. And so sales kind of boomed again in 1951, but it went away even faster because by the 60s, it was decidedly uncool. Everybody wanted Mm -hmm. to learn guitar instead. Tiny Tim was kind of that late 60s novelty act, and he Uh kind of really cemented the perception of the ukulele as just like a silly toy or a plastic throwaway meant for kids and comedians. But it came back again in the 70s and 80s once there was a resurgence in cultural pride in Hawaii. So it's kind of gone down. It's gone back. And, you know, apparently even Eddie Vedder had a full ukulele album that came out in 2011, which I had what? no idea about. Wow. <laughs> I got to find to go that. To- That's insane. <laughs> we may have to hit up YouTube for that one. <laughs> See, the only thing I got out of that timeline there is that ukuleles were super popular in the 20s. And then there was horrible economic and political unrest. (laughs) And then they went away. So I feel like possibly the ukuleles are causing our current situation, maybe. (laughs) A harbinger of depression and widespread cultural change. I mean, we may want to think about implementing something like a ukulele index to really kind of gauge whether we're all a little bit too overconfident and happy about things that we can turn to this frivolous, sweet instrument. That's right. We all know what happens after the ukulele falls. (laughs) out of favor. Be warned. We're not blaming you personally, Way. We're just, you you were a victim of. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I was just swept up in it. That's right. That's right. But you, you know, you weren't alone. Uh, You weren't the only one. There is a documented history of it happening and you never know when it's going to come back in fashion. So keep practicing. That's true. It sounds like like every 10 to 20 years. So uh, I'm Mm -hmm. going to hold on. Yeah, yeah. Don't get rid of it. Save it. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. So this article comes to us from eos.org, and it is titled, Venus Exploration Starts in the Lab. 
So okay. the first time we ever landed a spacecraft on Venus, as in we being humans, this <laughs> was the Soviet spacecraft Venera 13. And so they landed a probe on Venus, which sent back the first color photographs from the surface of another planet, revealing that it actually has a desolate landscape to match its hellish atmosphere. And it collected and analyzed a sample of the rocky surface and its acoustic detectors measured vibrations from the wind. So it set back some of the best data we have to date of Venus's surface, and it actually holds the record to the longest-lived Venus surface mission, which is 127 minutes. Oh, wow. Yeah. So scientists have actually been trying to return to Venus's surface since the late 1980s, but they want to do it with instruments that will last for days or even months. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to do that because the atmospheric and environmental conditions of Venus's surface are so intense. Mm. And so that's why they created the Glenn Extreme Environments Rig at the NASA Glenn Research Center in Cleveland, Ohio. And the acronym for it is GEAR. Okay. And it is a test chamber that can actually create Venus-like conditions to study how materials placed inside of the chamber will react. They've been able to simulate conditions all the way from Venus surface conditions, both lowlands and highlands, up through the lower atmosphere where they expect the cloud layers to be, and just slightly above the cloud layers and upper atmosphere. So they're actually able to target their ideas of what they think different areas of Venus's atmosphere will be like. It's pretty fascinating because they talk about other attempts that they've had to land a probe on Venus all fall prey to the same thing, which is temperatures that are hotter than 450 degrees Celsius, pressures that are about 90 times that of the Earth's surface, so 90 bars, and also a corrosive carbon dioxide atmosphere. Oh, is that all? So, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) The little things. Right, right. And in those conditions, a spacecraft can survive for years on Mars or on the moon, would break down in minutes on Venus as the outer casing will just melt and dissolve and wires will corrode and even delicate hardware will warp really, really quickly. And they actually have an interesting picture here that shows just some metal wiring. And then in the Mm -hmm. after, it is just exploded. It looks like those ferrofluids that you have magnets, but placed around every like side of the wire. Like it's crystallizing and creating tree formations. It's really wild. Uh, So, I mean, they're hoping obviously that they're going to be able to make some sort of substance alloy that can withstand this stuff so they can hopefully someday send a probe back. Yeah, absolutely. They're using the gear to test many different types of minerals as well. So they're finding that instead of copper, which you usually use for electronics and circuitry, gold would actually be a better material to use because of the reactivity on the on Venus's surface and how gold functions is just different to copper completely. And so they're testing lots of different geological materials, like different types of glasses, basalts, minerals, and other things that they might expect to find on Venus's surface to understand how they might change or what they might look like if they're trying to identify them on the surface of Venus. Right, because you wouldn't even know what you were looking at if it doesn't look Mm -hmm. the way it does on Earth at all. Yeah, absolutely. And another big part of that, too, is that they need to do these tests so that they can understand what they'll be seeing as a result when it's on Venus, because... If they don't have initial preliminary tests and comparisons, they won't be able to tell what is actually happening to those materials when they're actually on Venus. Because, you know, you see something explode, you don't know what it was or why, but if you've seen the same thing explode within the gear locally, then you'll get to see that. Huh. Whoa. So, I mean, 
if the whole probe is made of gold, at least it's going to look really nice. It'll be super flashy <laughs> for a little bit. It's the new virtue signaling. We can afford to do this in all gold now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the gold is mostly just for the electrical conductors, oh, I believe, right. uh, for the electronics. Mm-hmm. So it won't be an entirely gold probe, unfortunately, <laughs> but that would be really, really cool. <laughs> or a little too Trumpian for my taste. Let's just keep the gold where it makes sense to do it. <laughs> yeah, just in the electronics. I don't know, man. Uh, I, like, I'm picturing spinning rims. Like, you could totally check this out. <laughs> uh. So the gear that they've created is actually a pretty impressive piece of technology because it can actually replicate temperatures from just ambient temperature up to 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 537 degrees Celsius. Hmm. And they've got a picture of this thing, and it's essentially just this huge three-by-four-foot circular cylindrical container, which I assume they have all kinds of like electromagnetic conductors and, and other sciencey things that are not completely explained in this article that are what enable it to reach those pressures and temperatures. Well, and it sounds mm. like if it's adjustable, they could also set up other environments that mimic the atmosphere on Jupiter or pick a different environment to test even in the same one unit. Yeah, absolutely. And they're even trying to replicate the gear. They have a second one, which is a little bit smaller and is really useful for doing quicker in parallel tests that allow them to figure out the same sorts of stuff without having to haul around this massive Mm -hmm. cylindrical metal container. Mm -hmm. And they're Mm -hmm. hoping that they can build a full scale model of their new probe and test it inside gear for a full 60 days by 2023. So Venus, we won't see you this year or next year, but uh, hopefully pretty soon. We're coming. (laughs) I'm optimistic. Right. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Next link. Next link. All right. Well, let's talk about rat traps in New Zealand. Oh, finally. I know, right? We've been waiting. <laughs> I know this is your personal soapbox. So this is uh, this comes from Wired. This is a story about uh, invasive species, right? I think most people are probably aware of the narrative that invasive mammal species, they go into Australia, New Zealand, and they wipe out the marsupials that tend to be native to those areas. But they also, it turns out, wipe out native mammals, which they do have, and even a lot of birds, both flightless and flying birds. Somehow some of these invasive mammals are predators and they're really able to just decimate the bird population over there. We're talking about cats, right? When you talk about these imported mammals, I mean, I'm familiar with cats being kind of like one of the major threats to a lot of this native wildlife that you're talking about on those islands. They didn't mention cats at all. They talk about rats and possums and mustelids, which includes weasels and stoats and ferrets. Oh. Yeah, I know. And I think the weasels are probably the bigger hunters. The rats are probably just sort of spreading and taking over and eating all the food. But uh, they said at this point, New Zealand only has two native mammal species left. What? Yeah, they're both little thumb-sized bats. And apparently those bat populations are doing reasonably well, but everything else mammal-wise has gone extinct. And they didn't have that many mammals to begin with. But basically they said it's too late for the mammals, but it's not too late to save the native birds. So currently, 20% of native bird species on New Zealand are extinct and another 30% are threatened. And they've kind of gotten together and said, you know, we see what happened with our mammals and we're not going to let this happen. We need to really actively fight back. Mm -hmm. So in 2015, the New Zealand government launched Predator Free 2050, which was a program that gave $17 million in funding, uh, which is $28 million in New Zealand dollars, given to local organizations to wipe out invasive species basically any way they saw fit. They said, just go after them, trap them, hunt them, do whatever you need to do. Here's money to do it. Dang. And so this article sort of focuses on one of those local organizations called Predator Free Wellington. 
partially because they have actually seen quite a lot of success. They have focused on the city of Wellington and the suburb of Miramar in particular because Miramar sits on a peninsula that can be sort of separated off from the rest of the island relatively easily. And Mm. their main targets, like I said, are rats and mustelids. And the irony is, of course, that these weasels weren't originally a problem on the island. They were brought in in the 1880s to control an invasive rabbit population. And so, you know, it's the old woman who swallowed a fly kind of syndrome. And now the weasels are a much bigger problem than the the rabbits ever were. And they operate, they said, part of the reason they're successful is they operate largely by getting residents on board, right? They're not trying to do this Mm -hmm. themselves. They canvassed door to door in 2019 and they got 92% of residents to support the effort philosophically and 99% were willing to allow traps or whatever in their backyard. Even if they said, Mm. you know, this isn't going to work, you're wasting your time. They said, sure, put a trap in my yard. I don't care. And so they got uh, 1,800 traps spread out in sort of a grid all across the Miramar suburb. There's basically one in everybody's backyard. And they also got residents to put out chew cards, which is a specific type of material that it's sort of like when the rat bites a piece of it, it takes a tooth imprint. And so they're able to tell really easily which species are kind of dominating where. And that allows them to put specific bait in the traps, right? Because, for example, as established, weasels like to eat rabbits, whereas Mm -hmm. rats are not going to go eat a rabbit. They want peanut butter. Or they said in particularly tricky cases, they'll get out the Nutella because the Nutella is uh, (laughs) very seductive to the New Zealand rat, apparently. I Um, I can empathize. And to me. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) But it is more expensive than the peanut butter. So they start with the peanut butter and see where they go. But there's no shame in just saying we are absolutely going to kill these animals in every possible way we can. The trapped animals are kept in what's called the freezer of death for dissection and monitoring. Oh, my. They say, for example, if they can do an autopsy on the rat and note that the rat has previously ingested poison and lived, that can kind of give them an idea of, oh, you know what? These poisons aren't working as much anymore or we need to put a higher dose in the cage. If they find that a rat that they have caught is pregnant or lactating, that means there's a whole litter of babies in that area that they need to go after and they can't walk away from that area. But at this point, they say most neighborhoods are completely rat free. They're closing in on just about 30 hot spots remaining. And that was when coronavirus struck, which prevented the team from going out and handling their traps and sort of monitoring them as closely as they have been. But they said that the program is so popular because they are starting to see these bird species come back. They had a species of bird that was basically thought to be extinct. And after the rats and the uh, weasels were cleared out, the birds started to return. And now they said they're everywhere. Everybody can see these birds in their backyard. And they're really pleased. They're pleased with the results. And so the residents have actually stepped up during this time when the uh, Predator Free Wellington volunteers can't get out to their traps anymore. They said that the residents have been going to stores and like buying and baiting their own traps or just putting more bait in the same trap to prevent the rat population from surging again until the volunteers can come back out and resume their work. So it uh, it can be done, apparently. You can eradicate rats. I don't think New York is going to get that level of co- coordination and cooperation from its residents right now, but it's possible if you're trying to uh, protect the species. Yeah, and just the sheer amount of community engagement and involvement is super impressive. Yes. Yeah. And I think we've seen that with New Zealand recently as well. Like, I, that's why I was looking at that going like, that's amazing and could never happen here. Like, we, yeah. <laughs> we are not, <laughs> not in current day here, but no. I am hopeful, guys. Well, that's good. We should keep keep our hopes up. Maybe someday we can strive to be like New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag 2020 that's thoughts. Right. Next link. <laughs> Next, Next link. link. 
This next link comes from The Walrus. It's by Erica Thorkelson, and it's called The Comedy Culture War. And it really is taking a closer look at a new wave of comics that are rejecting stand-up's tired oh. tropes. I'm a I'm a huge uh, yeah. fan nice. of comedy, so I'm I'm all about. I'm going to see how many names you give that I recognize. <laughs> <laughs> well, just to kind of kick off with one of the names that is cited in here that I think is probably one of the better mainstream examples would probably be Hannah Gadsby. Mm-hmm. Did you guys watch Nanette on Netflix? Okay, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and there's a new one called Douglas, which is kind of a tough act to follow because Nanette really did so much to like break the mold of what a traditional formulaic comedy stand-up routine was like, mm-hmm. and indeed in that whole program it really did a lot to kind of expose and make transparent those formulas and kind of the human cost of doing that for people who are especially coming from more marginalized or minority voices and so this kind of looks into you know not the reckoning but just sort of the wave of more inclusive voices that are really looking at what it means to punch up instead of punch down right and how stand-up comedy in particular has a really, really long history of having, you know, women just kind of grit their teeth in the audience, in particular mm-hmm. women. So basically, the formula used to be that, you know, if there's something weird about you, you just acknowledge it and you move on, right? And anything unusual is basically if you're not straight, if you're not white, if you're not cisgender, if you're not male. And if you're not any of these things, you basically just kind of wanted to like, yeah, let's address it, but just move on so that we can still find our common ground. Because getting audiences on board, usually if you're pushing the wrong crowd to an uncomfortable place, it often meant losing the room entirely, Mm -hmm. right? And people like Joan Rivers or Richard Pryor, they knew this firsthand, right? They had to work even harder to get audiences on board. But in recent years, the audiences have been changing because we have podcasting, streaming, and social media. We're getting larger and more diverse audiences to comedians who once might have been dismissed as niche, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that writer Christopher Hitchens and comedian Adam Carolla were saying out loud that women could never be as funny as men. Right. And we're starting to really understand that those arguments are really not just the article calls them quaint, but just like (laughs) woefully misguided and outdated. Like in the past five years alone, there have been four Netflix specials that featured pregnant women. Mm -hmm. We had Ali Wong, Natasha Leggero, Amy Schumer, and then Ali Wong again on her second pregnancy. (laughs) But this also means that we have a growing divide, right? Kind of story of our life right now. So New faces mean that there's less tolerance for the flippant bigotry that has really long been a part of stand-up. There was that guy who lost his spot on Saturday Night Live, Shane Gillis, after people called out his history of using homophobic and racial slurs. Mm -hmm. And we've also got some big wigs like David Chappelle and Ricky Gervais, other comedians who are complaining that people can, quote, no longer take a joke and that we're starting to get our edge dulled in comedy because of what they dismiss as cancel culture. Uh But it also could be that the nature of comedy is changing. And while they might have once been considered provocative or dangerous, it's really not that cutting edge anymore, right? Right. Well, and the thing that I've noticed and greatly appreciate is there's almost something Shakespearean about the fact that the type of comedy that people are doing or now being allowed to do both tends to be a combination of serious and funny. Right. Like the one liners Mm -hmm. much they're sort of just one liners. They're jokes with a punchline and that's it. And now you're getting much more of these narrative stand ups. I mean, even from straight cis white men, there's a guy named uh, Daniel Schloss. I can never pronounce his name, but he did a whole thing (laughs) where he is traditionally sort of considered one of those like slightly borderline racist kind of iffy punchlines. And then he did a whole special about his special needs sister. And just I won't spoil it because there's a whole narrative in there, but it was a really touching thing that came from someone that no one expected. 
And I, there's hope, I think, for me, that people can change the type of material that they're producing if they're just willing to sort of open their mind and say, oh, you know what? I can tell that kind of story, too. I don't have to stick with this yep. one formula. Exactly. So so you're bringing up something that I think that this article does a good job at getting to without saying outright, which is it's not just the content of comedy that's changing, but the context of comedy. And so to have a punchline and to make it a really brief, quick joke that lands, you have to assume that you and the audience have some kind of shared understanding about the nature of reality, whether it's your own perspective, a common perspective, often that's been stereotypes and things like that. But when you're getting this kind of fusion of narrative and punchline, it's basically giving these comedians a chance to produce and create a context from which that shared understanding can be built in that moment so that when the punchline lands, it's something that you can get that maybe without that context you wouldn't have gotten before. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel, I feel like those long setups also, while they take more effort and more empathy, they are so funny. Oh, as yeah. A result the payoff is you're bigger. In them. Mm-hmm. Exactly yeah, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And if you and haven't I mean, already seen Douglas, which is uh, Hannah Gadsby's follow up to Nanette, I won't spoil too much because, in part of how meta that whole performance is, because the first 15 minutes or so basically review the entire outline of the show she's about to do <laughs> in a very self-aware way before launching into it, which is like not only like a pull back of the curtain to sort of like see the format, it spoils it in a way, but it also creates this framework and context, which can increase that payoff like we're talking about. Yeah, yeah I haven't seen it yet. I'm going to have to go go switch it on as soon as we're done recording here. <laughs> yeah. 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 Although I have to say, this article does put an insane amount of pressure on us to be funny <laughs> to say to say something witty but not obviously punching down and just you know really hit that sweet spot and now i don't know like the spotlight's on me i don't know if i can perform keep on evolving man that's right art is meant to evolve it's a good direction to go that's right yeah. and what makes people uncomfortable which is art mm-hmm. you know if it's succeeding it's making people uncomfortable there are different ways to do that that are going to produce better good as opposed to just reinforce really unjust status quos sure absolutely yeah and I mean just as we move more towards a world where our consensus reality is more fractured but also a little bit broader at the same time mm-hmm. it's not even a matter of being uncomfortable it's just a matter of being bored like <laughs> right. the old same things like the yep. edge that these comedians talk about. I'm just like, heard it. Yeah, boring. not an edge yeah, anymore. Okay, what else you got? Yeah, exactly. Yep. So where is that new edge? Arguably, it's something that is going to be more deft in the hands of marginalized, underrepresented voices, diverse viewpoints, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, fingers crossed. I'm going to watch Douglas and I hope it, it lives up to the hype. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're glad you've joined us. We hope you'll keep coming back next week and in the weeks beyond. If you want to support us and keep us going on those weeks beyond, you can go to patreon.com slash damn interesting week. There are articles that we did not have time to get to today because there are so many out there. Some of those articles include how weapons manufacturers are preparing for climate change. This bot hunts software bugs for the Pentagon. And who will own the cars that drive themselves? So all that and more can be found on damninteresting.com. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Wei Spur Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.